From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, I talk with Friday's six-string concert performer, Irene Kelly, about songwriting and getting the call from a record label while she was waiting tables. But first, Jim and Nancy Petro discuss their book, False Justice, a critique of the legal system based on Jim's experience as Ohio Attorney General, written before his recent appointment as the Ohio Chancellor of Higher Education. During his 28 years as an elected office holder, Jim Petro has held a variety of positions, including a 2003 to 2007 term as Ohio Attorney General. In this role, he was the first Ohio Attorney General in nearly 40 years to argue before the United States Supreme Court. His experiences as Attorney General led him to the conclusion that the legal system is flawed and sometimes convicts innocent people. With his wife Nancy, Mr. Petro wrote the book False Justice to explore what they see as the eight myths that convict the innocent, and they are advocating for change. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Jim and Nancy Petro. Thank, thank you very much. Well, let's talk about uh, the writing of the book and where you started on the book. How did you begin with this book? What was your, your impetus, other than being the Ohio Attorney General? I'm, obviously, it was an issue that was of concern to both of us. Mm -hmm. Wrongful criminal conviction is a heartbreaker, and we'd experienced it firsthand. And then, Nancy, tell Doug what happened. Well. Uh, Actually, the concept for this book struck me in the middle of the night. In fact, it awakened me from a deep sleep mm -hmm. with quite a bit of clarity. And it was that we had to record these experiences that Jim was having. And the, it was, you know, we were experiencing epiphanies, uh, an awakening to wrongful criminal conviction. And so... A literal awakening. This was literally an awakening. Um, and, and so, you know, when, when Jim got up that morning, I said, Jim, guess what? We're going to write a book. <laughs> That's a great way to wake up in the I morning. Know, yeah. Someone well, says... We are. We are. We are. Okay. Uh, I can't write. <laughs> so how did it go from there? What, were, what was the process you went through? You began to write things down. You began to follow right. cases. How did that work for you? And how did you work with, with him, uh, bring, with him bringing home, I assume, some of the material and then doing research together? Well, Jim and I have been married for 38 years, and okay. we have a very chatty relationship. So other than privileged client information, Jim and I Tell share. He, mm -hmm. he shares yeah. his experiences. And he was having some amazing experiences as, as Attorney General, which, which he can relate and which are related in the book. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, there didn't have to be a lot of ex extraneous conversation. I started actually trying to find the answers to the questions that these experiences prompted. Mm -hmm. How often does this happen? Why does it happen? And so the first iteration of this was more like a research paper that was in third person and that was probably very boring. Uh, <laughs> so it took a while to evolve into what became Jim's memoir focusing on the criminal justice system, his experiences in it, and with a number of flashbacks, the transformation that he went through really as a person mm -hmm. in his beliefs about this core institution that's been so much a part of his life. Okay. So tell me, oh, actually, uh, let's walk through a couple of these myths that you address because it's, you've got the eight myths as the subtitle, and I was really struck by a number of them. Um, everybody in prison claims innocence. And you say that... That's a myth. That's a myth that doesn't um, seem to be true. I, I'll give you the best example of, of why it's not true. When I became Attorney General, I advocated aggressively, and ultimately the legislature adopted, legislation that allowed for post-conviction DNA testing 
of those who are in prison who profess their innocence and really want to take whatever uh, biological material may be left from the crime scene and take DNA tests. They want to try to prove their innocence using DNA. Um, when that bill was pending, many, many in law enforcement were fighting it tooth and nail, basically saying there's going to be thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people who come forward because everybody in prison says they're innocent. Well, I knew that wasn't true. I knew that most people in prison accept their fate because they know they committed the crime. Um, and so to date, from 2003 when that law was adopted till today, eight years later, there have been 412 people who've requested post-conviction DNA testing. What's the it's not overwhelming. Yeah, what's the percentage, would you say, of convictions? I mean, how many Well, in prison, there, at any know? point in time, there's over 50,000 people in Ohio in prison, and they're, they're coming in and out. Uh, every year, I'm guessing we have probably 30,000 people convicted of felony crimes in Ohio. Okay. So the other thing is uh, our system, one of the other myths, our system almost never convicts an innocent person. And tell me about your walking through that, because what I'd like to look at is, as you were writing the book, you said the first draft was sort of a, a research paper, right, third person, and then you began to walk through it and said, okay, I'm going to restructure this book, it's going to be first person, and it's going to talk about these eight myths with some asides on other aspects of your memoir. And um, I, I, I'm curious about how that arose. Yeah, but basically wanted people to experience the same learning process that we did. And the learning came with Jim's experiences, of course, mm -hmm. but then the learning also came with research. And so we tried, what, what's, I mean, as far as the structure of the book goes, it is really two, ribbon, two ribbons are flowing through the book. One of them is the memoir, uh, storytelling, narrative, true crime analysis, and then the other one is the research that we found out about. And actually, the, 12, the eight myths are in the last 25 pages in the, of the book. Mm -hmm. So even though it's titled with the eight myths, you learn about the eight myths all the way through the book. You see them demonstrated. And when they're finally presented to you in the last 25 pages, I think most readers already know that these are truly myths. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's fair that when we look at myth number two, the system almost never convicts the innocent. The reason that becomes a myth, and. I'm not saying for a moment that there's like 10% of people wrongfully convicted, but it is a substantial number. We don't know what it is. If I had to guess, I'd probably say a half a percent to 1%. In Ohio, that might mean 500 people are in prison that are wrongfully convicted. That's a big number from my mind. And nationwide, we've got 2.3 million people in American prisons. That'd be 23,000 people. That's a lot of people. So um, there's no way of, of really quantifying it, but we know that it's not anecdotal. It's, it's not something that just happens infrequently. There's 266 DNA exonerations that have occurred over the last decade. Uh, all of those individuals have been proven unequivocally innocent by DNA, and DNA only applies in very, very limited cases. So, uh, again, people are wrongfully convicted, but the quick story I want to get through, unfortunately you've got 23 minutes, I'm going to tell this one very quickly, uh, and that is, um, beginning in 1989, the FBI began to track lab results of matching DNA technology. On the one hand, the labs would receive DNA from a crime scene, typically a rape kit, typically a vaginal swab of a, of a woman who may have been sexually assaulted. They would match that with the DNA taken from the alleged perpetrator, the suspect, whom was, who was principally identified by the victim with her eyewitness 
identification, mm -hmm. identified that individual as the perpetrator. There were 10,000 occasions over the first 13 years where this matching occurred. 10,000 cases, that's a pretty big sample. In 20% of those cases, 2,000, it was unequivocal. They couldn't figure out what the outcome would be. But in the remaining 8,000, 25% of those, they didn't match. Mm -hmm. That's a big number mm -hmm. because in the old days, before DNA, that person who'd been identified by the eyewitness would have been prosecuted and 70% plus percentage of the time would have been convicted. Mm -hmm. But DNA exonerated them before the prosecution occurred. 25% is a big number. In reality, um, in the 266 um, uh, identific or, uh, exonerations I've mentioned, 75% of the uh, convictions occurred based solely on evidence of an eyewitness. Mm -hmm. So you can see the difficulty with eyewitness identification. Right. And you've right got there. a you've got and a lot a whole discussion there that talks about an eyewitness is the best testimony is another myth right. that you feel like um, there's a lot in the book about uh, even psycho psychological sh tests that show that uh, the memory isn't always as airtight right. as you would expect it to be. There's a one line in here uh, about a uh, a professor who came home had been robbed and thought he was you know able to identify everything turned out that several of the things that he uh, thought that he had identified correctly were wrong and what makes this an unusual case is that he was a professor of psychology who had done a lot of memory study right. and would have been um, there's a line that says something like he wasn't uh, just a uh, a um, a forgetful academic he was something else which I thought was nice mm -hmm. you know? yeah. so, <laughs> so tell me about the writing process for the book how did you uh, start working on it together who took which part you had said uh, a little before we got started that if uh, you were to categorize yourself it would be not necessarily as a writer that Nancy's the writer and I'm a lawyer and if I would have written it the lawyer the lawyerliness would have come out as it has in the briefs that I've written over the years and, and the reader would would doze off in a matter of minutes. It's Nancy's prose because she's an excellent writer, I think, and basically it's my stories. I would talk to her about things and, and kind of refresh my recollection and then go through the story as, as it evolved and Nancy would be the transcriber. Okay. So you had to transcribe his stories and make them interesting. And I'd like to bracket that and come back to, you know, what it is about law, uh, law writing that uh, seeks to put the reader to sleep. But tell me about taking his stories and making them more interesting. What was your process for it? And that's very interesting. You know, I think when you write, you, you get yourself in a room and you turn off everything, at least I do, and, and you just begin to tell the story. And then you try to refine it and you try to give it some pacing and you try to make it interesting. Mm -hmm. And that, that was one of the things that when we first uh, sent this off to the very first publisher, it was still the third person version. And um, he basically came back and said, you know, I think you have something that might be interesting, but you know, we have to get a real writer to do this. And he used a few um, adjectives and I thought, okay, they really want this to read more like fiction. And I thought, you know, the, the object is, of course, to have a lot of people read it. This was supposed to have enough substance, in our view, to be interesting to um, people in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. But we also really were targeting the general audience, mm -hmm. uh, adults, adults. And so um, I, I took a whole different approach. And I, and I realized that if I did it from Jim's voice, that alone would allow me to write what I know he was feeling and thinking about as he had these experiences. 
I then wrote them down and then Jim would review the writing because he could correct any errors. But basically, I knew these stories. I had lived them with him. Okay. What kind of, when you said correct uh, there's there, obviously there could be factual things, but there's also, as you said, you're, you're structuring a narrative. You're creating something that will lead somebody through a story. And part of that is his thoughts and feelings. I'm curious about the times when you said, you know what, no, this isn't really what I was feeling or thinking at the time. How did you deal with those sorts of differences, uh, what you thought he was thinking and what he says he's thinking? How does that get worked out? Well, there were times when I would review what she's written after we would talk, and then she would write, and then I would review it, and there were times where it really, it would, my feeling was different, and we, we then sat and kind of worked it all out, and then she rewrote. I mean, you know, how do you correct well, it? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a really interesting marital moment, you know? I, I, <laughs> I mean, my wife and I have been married for 19 years, and we used to, we had a job working together in a really terrible restaurant, and uh, <laughs> it didn't go so well. You know, we kind of got each, uh, this was many years ago, but we kind of got on each other's nerves. And I'm interested, uh, when you're that close, you're under a lot of pressure, you're taking your own story and you're putting sort of your spin on it to make it interesting to other people. It's like being at a party, he starts to tell a story and you say, no, you've got it wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there were that many of those. I think sure. for me, uh, what would have been impossible when writing the book was not have a true lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And we speak on about legal issues. and. I learned about these issues through the research. I mean, just as Jim had done, I read all the trial transcripts, the police reports, uh, you know, law, uh, legal decisions. I read all those things. You can read those things even if you're not a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And you can understand them even if you're not a lawyer. But it's, it, it was very helpful to be able to turn to a real lawyer and say, what do you think about, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about Miranda? What do you think about the various things that, that we bring up in the book. I should point out also that we always work well together. Okay. Um, in the course of my, I never expected to get into politics and we were married about five or six years when I first ran for the legislature and I point out I'd have never won without her. She's organized, she got the whole roots of the campaign message pulled together. She gave me the guidance that you need every day. And I had a very interesting career as a legislator, as a county commissioner, as a state auditor, state attorney general, all because of her political efforts. And so, yeah, we work well together. I wouldn't be able to do anything without her. You're listening to Writer's Talk with my guests Jim and Nancy Petro discussing their co-written book, False Justice, A Look at the Problems of the Ohio Legal System. And now, back to our discussion. I'll say something else. I told you that I felt called to write this book. Mm -hmm. And I somehow feel that uh, that uh, followed us through this book. I, f I felt, you know, empowered to do this in a way that shouldn't have been there. You know, I, I had never taken a writing course. Mm -hmm. I had never gone to a writing convention. And um, this book not only flowed well, it, I mean, it was two and a half years in the making, but it flowed well, it flowed fairly easily, it found its structure fairly easily, uh, and we found a publisher, amazingly, mm -hmm. pretty easily. And so I felt that um, there was just a, a lot of grace involved in this book. Okay, and you've also, you've got a background in publishing, so that helps the idea of the book, though. So it's not as though you're, you know, you're, you're sort of uh, stepping back and saying, I, you felt called to this, I didn't ha necessarily have the background, but you did have a... a well, background my background was art, you. it was graphic design. design. Oh, okay. I had a graphic design firm for 20 years, mm -hmm. and then after that, I launched a national high school sports magazine, mm -hmm. but my role in that was not so much writing, it was, um, uh, you know, business management 
okay. including selling advertising and everything else you have to do to try to make a magazine float. Okay. You've got one other myth. Um, if the justice system has problems, the pros will fix them. It's a myth. You're saying it's a myth. Given that you represent it as a myth, tell me about how you see the problems getting fixed if the pros can't do it. We had an interesting battle beginning in, in 2008 in Ohio in the legislature. I work as the pro bono lawyer for the Ohio Innocence Project, which is based at the University of Cincinnati. The director there is Professor Mark Godsey, who's a law professor at the university. Um, Mark and I really set out to get some reforms adopted in Ohio, and we did. It took about two years, and the reforms that were adopted will take the justice system and fix it some ways. We'd like to do much, much more. They tell us uh, nationally that what we achieved in Ohio is, is more than what any other state has done, but I'm telling you it wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. The pros within the criminal justice system don't immediately just grab onto reforms and say, oh yeah, let's do them. They will basically say they don't believe they'll work. One of them, I'll give you a simple example. One of the reforms was to basically set a standard in Ohio law that says where you're gonna have an eyewitness identification procedure the administrator, the law enforcement officer who administers the procedure, a lineup or a photo array display, should not know who the perpetrator is, who the, not the perpetrator, the suspect mm -hmm. is. Because body language at the time that the witness is looking at this array can give the witness tips that make their decision Mm -hmm. directs their decision. Right, and you talk so, about one particular one where there were a number of pictures and the background on the suspect was a different color. Right. It was a, a close-up, the M other people much, were further much, away. Much larger right. facial view, uh, different color background, things like that that really do, you know, taint the process. We're striving to avoid tainting the process. A step further in that direction <coughs> would be to show the um, victim each photo or individual one at a time. That requires absolute judgment. Did this person do it or not? Instead, if you have all five or six packages, I think is what they call it, at the same time, then you tend to think, well, they wouldn't be showing me these pictures if they don't think they have the person. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pick the one that is closest to what I remember. That can work if the real perpetrator is there. But if not, that that's when you can have a wrongful identification. Mm -hmm. And there's a... I don't want to call it a, a sense of outrage but in the book, but maybe that's what it is. But as I was reading through it, I thought it, it must be difficult to write a book like this when you see all the injustices, when you see the things that are um, can be uh, were done incorrectly, were done with prejudice on the part of maybe the people working through it. For example, there's uh, one in which you identify the person, the, the, this person is still in jail, and the person that you believe, I think, did it, is initial is just shown by initials right and you for what I'm assuming are legal reasons uh, we, we did that at the last the last edit of the book we chose to actually put the initials in earlier we had the full name really yeah yes. so and, why did you go to the initials and his name is in court records and everything like that yeah. I think we just felt he's not been convicted or charged with any crime we don't need to inv to to identify him in the mass media that the book, I mean, to the extent that it's in the mass media, I'm hoping that it's in the tens of thousands, but who knows. Um, but we just made a decision to do that. Um, I believe, and I've argued in court, and I will argue in the Second District Court of Appeals probably in the next six months, that this individual whose initials we use 
actually is the perpetrator of this crime. Mm -hmm. Someone else has been in prison 20 years for it, but I believe the perpetrator is the person we've, we've identified here. So I guess what I'm getting at then is if you have all that and, and it was enough to wake you up, the idea to mm -hmm. wake you up, mm -hmm. when you've gone through all this, does this give you, uh, and especially with an outstanding case, does it give you a sense of closure to have written the book or is it still there for you? Is it still um, something that you think, you know, maybe there's a second book, maybe there's something else that, that we need to do? I think there are, I think it's a beginning. Uh, because I think it's going to take a long time for these reforms to be enacted. Uh, not a, and we've, we've made tremendous pro progress in Ohio. Ohio's nation leading now in, in this uh, criminal justice reform. But other states have a long way to go, and we still have many things we could do in Ohio. So I think it's a beginning. There are many things that we can do, put together CLE courses over time for, for laws, for lawyers, mm -hmm. uh, we'd like what are to CLE courses, it's continuing legal education oh, okay. courses, okay. which which lawyers have to take. Uh, you know that would be, I think, one iteration of the book that could, you know, help us get this message out. Okay. We hope that it's used in classrooms, uh, criminology students, and so forth. So there, there's, I think, a long way to go that we can. This is one vehicle to try to get the message out. So you've got um, this as the first vehicle. What are the, the next steps then? Just to, to go a little deeper, you talked about CLE. What do you have a plan for that? Is that something that's that's really uh, yeah. worked out on the horizon? No, or it's is not. It I think I think we've talked about these things. Jim has a very important responsibility, so so they'll be delayed. But you know, to the extent that I can be an advocate, I will, and and I will work with even other lawyers to try to to try to do things that would extend the message of the book. Until this past week, I was a lawyer in private practice, managing partner of a large law firm, dealing strictly with the law, a lot of time on my hands to advocate for the issues that we raise in the book. That's a little bit diminished now that the governor has named me chancellor of the right. university and system. So I, I, you know, now my advocacy really moves toward advocating for our higher education system but I still, this is a, an issue that, as you might imagine, is very close to my heart. It's the heart and soul of the justice system. If there's any lesson, actually I'm speaking at Ohio State Law School, the lesson I hope to be able to put forth in every opportunity I have a chance to deliver this message, and hopefully it'll be to law students and those who are gonna be our future prosecutors and future judges, is the criminal justice system is best served where it is a search for truth and where all of the participants, the prosecutors, the judges, really strive to see the truth and find out what the truth really is. It's not just a contest to convince a jury to go one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And if we can bring that message to young lawyers, I think we will have taken the step in the right direction. The book again is False Justice by Jim Petro and Nancy Petro, Eight Myths That Convict the Innocent. And thank you very much for being invited. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. April 15th, Six String Concert Guest. Irene Kelly once got kicked out of a band because she liked Dolly Parton. And we'll talk about how she's grown as a songwriter in the intervening years. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Irene Kelly. Hi, Doug. How did you get into songwriting? Tell me a little bit about that. I, I read that you got your first guitar when you were 19 and uh, yeah. started playing then. So how did the songwriting come after that? Well, that was pretty much by accident. I was uh, picked up the guitar and I was learning to play the three chords that... Uh, 
pretty much are all that you need in country music. <laughs> um, at least back then it was. <laughs> and um, of course, I'd only been playing for two weeks, and I decided to go out and do a show um, way before I was ready. But I was so excited about it, and um, my repertoire consisted of uh, Dolly Parton songs, of course, and um, just sitting alone with the guitar and playing the songs and working them up. I found myself um, playing other things and I'd be just kind of going about my day and a melody would kind of pop into my head and um, I would think, hmm, what song is that? And then I'd realize, well, that's not really anything I've ever heard or learned. It's just some original idea. And then I just sat down with the idea and would build on that. So it was really kind of by accident. And I never thought about songwriting as a profession or pursuing it. it um, before I played the guitar, songwriting to me, it just didn't occur to me as an occupation or, or a goal. I just thought, like everybody else, I guess, I thought songs just appeared mm -hmm. like Happy Birth. Somebody actually wrote that song, but most of my life, especially as a child, I just thought, well, it just, it's just there, just like dirt, just mm -hmm. appears. <laughs> But somewhere along the line, I, I gather you stopped thinking that they just appeared and started thinking about it as a craft and a, and a job. Yeah, I, exactly. And then, of course, lots of encouragement from other people as I moved through the music scene in, in the Pittsburgh area in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. I decided to record a 45 record. I sent some copies to record labels in Nashville as an attempt to to see what happens, you know, just cast your bread. And I got a call back from somebody that was working at CBS Records, which is now Sony Records, and he was also in the band, um, Johnny Rodriguez's backup band, and he had a publishing company. And uh, he called me in the middle of the day. I was actually working in a restaurant in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. He called me and said he wanted to publish my songs because he saw a talent there for songwriting from the 45 records that I had sent. I'd only had six original songs to my catalog at the time. I had to take a look at what that all meant. Very exciting, but it was very new to me. His name is Gordon Payne, and Gordon was a big part of encouraging me as a songwriter and seeing that there was actually a commercial possibility for me to be a songwriter in that in that way. Well, that's a great story. That sounds like a dream come true. Yeah, it was really surreal, and and even what he said was surreal because. Uh, I'm from the North, and I had never spent any time in the South at all. And he said, never forget, he said, you have a songwriting talent, and I'm not just blowing up your skirt. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard an expression like that before. And uh, then I, I came to fall in love with the Southern way and, and the Southern beat. What songs will you be showcasing for your concert? Well, we always do more than that. And you hear a sad, sad song about someone who lost everything they had. It may sound like me, but I'm a little bluer than that. When you look out in the morning... Well, that sounds great. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sure our listeners are as well. Well, Irene Kelly, I want to thank you very much for talking to us today on Writer's Talk, and we will see you uh, this week. You will. I will be there Friday in the Call Arts Center. I'm really looking forward to it, and I really thanks for the for having me as a guest on your show. Thank you. You have a great day. You too.
You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, a co-production with The Ohio Channel. Irene Kelly's Thunderbird will carry us out. Join me next time for OSU students Kevin Bauer and Dan White, who will discuss reviving OSU's humor magazine, The Sundial, along with special guest R.L. Stein, he of Goosebumps fame. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. Sweet.